Dr. Adi and Mark, thank you for being here today to represent Clear Mind Medicine, a company established in Israel and Canada. I have a quick question, just curiosity, uh, because I've heard so many things and there's a lot of people that don't even know Israel. Israel is actually one of the uh, world's foremost experts and are actually in my understanding, beyond the years of a lot of other people when it comes to alternative therapies and studies, whether that be <clears throat> in the cannabis or the psychedelic realm. Is is that true? Yes, absolutely. That's that's awesome. Are, are, and Dr. Adi, are you there in Israel? Yeah, I'm based in Israel. That is that is wonderful. When did, when did the company start? When did you uh, found the company? So the company was founded around um, May 2021. I was at the time a consultant to the company and I was appointed CEO on July 2021. So shortly after the company started to be operated and I'm the CEO since then. Okay, well, that's wonderful. What what led to the the start of ClearMind Medicine? And maybe we should go back and maybe one of you guys can give us a brief overview of what clear mind medicine does. There were some very neat things that I was reading online, uh, specifically about MEAI. I saw some videos, Mark, that you have given some descriptions on that. And, you know, I want to get to that later on, but just a brief overview. Uh, what is clear mind medicine? Sure. So we are a pharmaceutical biotech company uh, focusing on developing treatments based on psychedelic compounds. Uh, with addictions being the first indications we're pursuing, starting with alcohol use disorder. But I can say that the three main projects we have today in the company is alcohol use disorder. Uh, we're also looking at obesity and metabolic syndrome disorder as a second addiction. And we're also developing an alcohol substitute, so more a consumer product rather than a pharmaceutical one. I will let uh, Mark, to speak a little bit about MEI and the history of MEI, because um, he has better knowledge about MEI than I than I do, just because of the fact that he has tried MEI, so he can really speak from uh, his own experience. And I did not try MEI until now, so I will so, add it to uh, Mark. Well, let me introduce myself, Mark Hayden. Yeah, <laughs> I spent my first career working for the addiction services, Vancouver Coastal Health, and I ran a program for the Health Authority in Vancouver, Canada. And I eventually became enamored with how psychedelics can help treating a whole variety of different addiction and mental health disorders. So I quit my first job and I started MAPS Canada, which is the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies in Canada. And we were working with the American organization MAPS to support their research in Canada. I also teach. I'm an adjunct professor of UBC School of Population and Public Health and have been very involved with clinical trial research for decades in a variety of contexts. So I joined ClearMind Medicine because I saw I knew the molecule. Um, what I saw is it was available, it was invented by a man who made it available on the internet. And then there became this buzz on the internet about its kind of bizarre anti-addictive qualities. People liked it. It was a positive experience, but people would use it to stop drinking. And actually, as it turns out, other addictive disorders as well. And so we watched the development 
on the internet of this discussion. And eventually ClearMind Medicine decided to step in and created a company around this molecule. And that's why we're having this discussion today. You say this, yeah. it, this molecule that was created, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I've uh, never heard sure. of this. I've heard of different uh, psychedelic therapies being used for what you're describing for addiction therapies and stuff, yeah. uh, or more widely, you know, with um, different like uh, ketamine therapies and stuff for PTSD, depression, chronic pain and everything. But when I never heard, what is MEAI? Like, what does that so stand for? MEAI is 5-methoxy-2-aminoindane. Now, that's a mouthful, I know. But <laughs> it's part of a group of molecules that are the aminoindanes. And they're a bit like, the best way to describe them is stale MDMA. So it's like ecstasy <laughs> is the street name of that. Yeah. But it's it's like MDMA that's lost its luster. Now, that's a really interesting thing to experience because that means people like it, but they don't love it. That's important because if you are offering a molecule that people love, then what you're talking about is you're having an addictive problem and an abuse problem. So it's a yeah. positive experience, but it's not a fantastic experience. So it's positive enough for people to use it in instead of using alcohol. And we have sort of two models of how we would approach this. People, as people like it, we could they could take it as an alternative to alcohol. If you want to drink, you have a choice. You go drink your vodka, or you could take MEI and you'll have a positive experience. Or you could drink it with alcohol. If you're an alcoholic, in fact, one of the anecdotal studies that was done mm -hmm. by the inventor is he found a group of Russian alcoholics that got together every few days with 26 ounces of vodka. And they would drink their... That's each, not as a group. They would yes. all bring their own bottle and they would consume their own, their 26 ounces during the course of the evening. And the inventor said, can I add something to your drink? And they said, yes. And they all stopped drinking and they liked it. I mean, if you put, if you think about alternatives from an addiction services point of view, there's antabuse. Yeah, if you put antabuse in their vodka, they'll stop drinking, but they will hate you and they will never do it again because they will be violently ill. Vi yes. if you put naltrexone or a, a caprosate into their drink or as an addition to it, they'll take away the pleasure because it kind of numbs pleasure is what those things do. So it, it actually works for some people, but not many and people don't generally like it. So this is a completely novel way of approaching addictions, of giving something to people that they enjoy a little bit. They don't love, but they like it. And then they just stop drinking because they hit this satiation wall. Let me, let me actually describe the experience. I think it would yes. be useful. If you take one, it feels like one beer. If you take two, it feels like two beers. If you take three, it feels like a very low dose of MDMA, about 50 milligrams. So, so just a mild, pleasurable, positive experience where you feel safe and connected to others in the room and convivial. You know, you're connected and you're social right. and you feel conversational. Right. If you take the next one, the abrupt change is actually memorable. It's the best way that I've ever described it. If just finished eating two pieces of chocolate covered goopy cheesecake. And somebody puts a third piece of cheesecake in front of you and hands you a fork. You just look at that third piece of cheesecake with, quite frankly, revulsion, you know, or you, you can't imagine touching it. But put yourself in that moment, in that place for a moment. Visualize that third piece of cheesecake in front of you and ask yourself, why can't you touch it? It's not you're so sedated, you're lying on the floor. It's not you're so stimulated, you're hanging off the ceiling. It's not because you're so violently ill, you're kneeling in front of the toilet. 
you're just done. You're sick of cheesecake. You are satiated. So MEI seems to have a way of pushing this satiation button in people's brains. And that's why it works. So you just, you, you're completely and absolutely finished. And yet you've had a positive experience up until that moment. So th- there is nothing else like MEI in the world of addictions treatment. This, this is crazy. This is crazy. Yes. The coming from, this is nuts. I've, personal experience with, with addiction and in, in my family and, and even myself personally in a, in a later, uh, earlier life of mine that it's hard to get over. And alcohol, alcohol was one thing that I struggled with for years. Yeah. You know, you that cheesecake analogy that you just gave, that isn't the case with, with addicts, with their substance, you know, there's always room for one more, you know, yes. we're always okay to take more. That's crazy. Yeah. So it I, I could, that. Because I worked in addiction services for years, I talked to many people who said the same thing to me, which is one beer is too many and 30 is too few. Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining talking to that person now, and I would have a conversation by saying, okay, I understand. Once your lips touch alcohol, you completely lose control and you drink and you drink and you drink until you're completely obliterated. I could imagine having a discussion with that person and saying, how many would you like to drink? And if the answer is four, I could imagine dosing that person so that they drink four drinks and then they have the satiation response and they're, they're done at four and that that's it. So you can actually start to pick and choose how much you drink. Now, is this something that gets added to, you know, this is my beer. I add it to my beer. I drink one and I'm like, okay, I'm done with the one. Or is this something that you can take before? How is, how are the different ways that this is being used? We could envision all of that. We could envision you drinking it in opposition to, so as an alternative. We could envision adding it to the alcohol. We could envision taking a pill or two at the beginning of the drinking experience. All all of those are on the table for discussion. Now, yeah, a, I, I just want ahead, to don't. add that, as I said, we have uh, multiple projects on the co- on the company, and one of them is to develop um, a treatment for alcoholism. So the way we envision it is that eventually you will be sober because you just don't feel like you need or want to have an alcohol beverage. Right. But uh, because there are many times, you know, there are people who will not uh, even uh, consider entering a clinical trial, uh, let alone to start um, a treatment just because they don't want anyone to touch their the drink. I think that with MEI, because uh, it gives you this um, sediation uh, feeling together with kind of a control, very nice feeling of uh, like you had, um, I don't know, one or two beers. Uh, I think this is something less um, uh, frightening and people will be will really want to to join such a study because in a sense no one will touch their drink they'll still have this nice feeling uh, of alcohol if this is what they're looking for and this is why we believe that um, mei can be really a very attractive and very effective treatment and by the way in the clinical trial that we are just about to start we we do not ask the People who jo- who will join the the study to stop drinking. This is not one of the exclusion criteria, which usually it is. Again, we believe that MEI will do the the trick, and we don't have to um, tell anyone in advance. You must stop drinking uh, in order to be enrolled into our studies. You know, alcoholism and alcohol addiction is can be one of it can even be deadly when trying to come sober. You know, for some people, uh, depending on withdrawals. 
how how does this affect that does this because it's giving that sen- that sensation and you know they're full they're satisfied does that take that away does that take some of the withdrawals away as well no if you're addicted to alcohol and you stop you will have a massive withdrawal response including yeah. seizures Yes. And the only thing that would take away the withdrawals are some things that are cross-tolerant with alcohol. Like a barbiturate, for example, is similar enough to alcohol that if you give it to an alcoholic, they won't have seizures. So that's called detox management. And yes. so MEI, it, we don't envision MEI as being used in detox specifically okay. to help people deal with seizures. Now, okay. I'm curious enough, actually, I, I could see MEI being used in detox, not for seizure management, but for med requests. I, I mean, I've worked in a detox center, and the challenge with working in a detox center is the tension between the people who want medications and the staff who want to say no. And so the tension is is actually quite palatable. I, and, and that's one of the problems of, of managing detox environments is working with that, that tension between the clients and the staff. I could easily imagine MEI being introduced to that, not to help people not have seizures, but to help people not have med requests so that people would actually get along better and the staff and the clients would be, um, it would be a, an easier environment for everybody if the med requests went down. Yeah. You know, another question that kind of comes to mind that you you hear about, you know, sometimes when people are going through addiction and they find uh, alternative therapies, alternative means, sometimes that alternative then becomes the new addiction, you know, is that a a chance with me possibility? Cause you said it does give like, you know, somewhat, uh, but also I'm sitting here trying to ponder. You said, if you take three, you know, it feels like a low dose of MD MDMA, but if you take four, you know, you're, you said it's pretty abrupt and you're done and you don't want anymore. That's, you know, that's different than a lot. Like I said, that's different than other substances. You know, most you can keep taking more and keep getting that feeling. This one, it's like the more you take, all of a sudden there's a, a, a cutoff, a limit, if you will. Yeah. So, so it's a great question and actually a key point because we definitely don't want to switch one addiction with another. So one of the first things that we have done uh, when we started to work with MEI was to test it on animals and see what is its reward potential because when you have a reward from some um, substance, it means that probably you will be addicted to it because you will want to continue uh, using it. So we uh, actually um, uh, compared it to two uh, very addictive substances. One is cocaine and the other one is sucrose. And we found MEI not to be addictive at all or not rewarding at all in comparison to, to cocaine and also for sucrose. So we are very encouraged by that. We will continue to test it, obviously, but we are very encouraged by these very initial um, signals because, as I said, you I cannot think of an example where you, where you had something that is not rewarding and addictive. So, but, but that's a key a key uh, point. Obviously, we we will not want to uh, develop anything that would just change the addiction. And I think that also Mark can speak from. Um, from his experience, because I um, many times heard him say that it's not very pleasant. It's not something that you will continue to seek after you use it. So, but but I will yeah. let uh, Mark uh, uh, expand about that. Yeah, it's pleasant, but it's not very pleasant. So it's not wow, 
you don't go, oh, that was fantastic. It's not a fantastic experience, but it's a nice experience. So if you, it's, it's the equivalent, if you think about a couple of beers, right. nobody goes, that was wow, but it, it's right. pleasant. You know, you, people like a couple of beers or a couple of glasses of wine. So it's in that kind of category of it's, it's pleasant, but it's not wow. Um, you feel safe, you feel warm, you feel connected to other people, but you don't, there's nobody going, oh my God, that was fantastic. It's not fantastic. And I think that's a, the human way of what Dee said when she looked through the lens of rodents. Yeah. This is the amazing information. I want to backtrack to a beginning question I had at the start of the conversation. I understand why Canada, you know, Canada is very uh, free in their thought and their laws and practices with alternative substances. You know, we saw that and very, very jealous, honestly, with how Canadian laws are with cannabis. I wish America would just follow uh, across the board. But um, with with that being in Israel, uh, starting this psychedelic company in Israel, alternative psychedelic therapy uh, company, uh, how's the reception over there? And then, you know, maybe not just focused in on Israel, but I've interviewed some other guests over the last month or a couple months um, and some other people that are into uh, psychedelic therapies and just part of this uh, psychedelic renaissance that we're kind of having uh, here in the U.S. and worldwide in a way, but you guys are worldwide with this. So what is your take on that? How is the perception going across the world? So I have to say that we are really being accepted very warmly, if you will. If you will look at the at our scientific advisory board and also institutions we collaborate with, whether it's universities or medical centers. I think we have top names and really uh, uh, very uh, distinguished um, uh, people working with us because they like the idea, they like uh, what they hear about MEI. And I think this is something across the board for psychedelic because there's such an unmet need for everything that has to do with mental uh, illnesses and, and addictions and the current options that we have to treat um, those diseases are very, very poor and definitely not lack of uh, adverse events associated with those treatments. We are being really embraced. And same in Israel, uh, we have uh, very good uh, connections here with psychiatrists, uh, leading psychiatrists. And, and this is one of the reasons why we decided that for a clinical trial, we will have site also in Israel, not just in the United States. But I have to say that today, mostly post-COVID, really where you based is really irrelevant because you collaborate and you operate in so many jurisdictions that, you know, where I'm based from or where Mark is based from is really just um, a matter of geographical uh, location, nothing more than that. That's true. That's true. And what I would add to what Dr. Adi just said was the psychedelic renaissance is everywhere. In Europe, North America, there's a growing acceptance in public opinion and by regulatory authorities that psychedelics are going to transform mental health treatment and addiction treatment. And as you know, there's MDMA for PTSD, psilocybin for end-of-life anxiety, psilocybin for depression, you know, the, the list goes on. And the number of universities that are doing legitimate research in this is, is huge. So we're really kind of working with the open door that both the public have offered us with their enthusiasm and universities and academic researchers have, have demonstrated with their level of interest in producing clinical trials. 
so the the door is open for the psychedelic renaissance and we're walking through it with um applause from the general public that is wonderful i'd like to talk about those clinical trials if we can a little bit if you guys are able to what is uh what how many have you guys treated what has the success rate been and and where do we see it going is this coming for public use here soon is this something that is going to be you know dropping in clinics or like you said uh uh, treatment clinics and and so on. So we are st just starting our clinical trials. Hopefully, in the very very near future. The 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 reality is that when because we are so young company, we just have been uh, operated for uh, for uh, almost two years. It takes a long time to get all the. Uh, preclinical studies that you are required to conduct by FDA before you can go to humans. And I have to be, to say that I'm very honored to say that we did it um, in a fairly quickly way. So we just completed the, 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 the preclinical trials and are preparing towards the clinical trials. So unfortunately, no, no clinical uh, trial results yet. Uh, but we do have those uh, testimonials we spoke about uh, of people trying MEI and experiencing it as something uh, effective and safe. Before you do a clinical trial, you have to do what's called preclinical toxicology work. So you have yeah. to ask rodents what they think of this experience. <laughs> so we have, and we've, we started with um, rats and mice, and we started with alcoholic. Did you know? Did you know you can make an alcoholic rodent? Well, you can. And so we've given MEI to alcoholic rodents and they stopped drinking, which didn't surprise us, but it, it reinforced our thought, our thinking. We noticed that rodents um, use less cocaine. Um, that was what Adi <laughs> was just talking about. We, we went to our rodents. Huh? <laughs> we went to an obesity researcher who that's all he does. He works with really, really fat mice. And we collaborated with him. And if you if you have an obesity product, and you you know think you have an obesity treatment, you go find this guy and you ask him what he thinks um, and what their his mice think. And he said he had never seen anything like it because if you give an obese rat crystal meth or cocaine or some other stimulant, they will lose weight, but they will be completely messed up in the process. Not yeah. surprisingly, and what he described to us was really interesting. He said the what he produced with giving them MEI was a normalized mouse. It was a normalizing agent. And, and that was really interesting because he, he tracked both their activity in a great deal of detail. They had these cages with laser beams across them to register all movement. So a very, very detailed analysis of how they move. And then he does the autopsy afterward and looks at, looks at how fat is distributed in the body. And what he noticed is that obese rats lost weight. They became normal. But they also were normal in their activity profile, and they were normal in what he saw after they were euthanized. So he said, this is a normalizing agent. And I, I found that absolutely fascinating because that, that kind of makes sense with, you know, the anecdotal human stuff is that, you know, if you think about alcoholics stopping drinking, that also is a normalizing agent. They don't dive into alcohol and, and swim in the swimming pool of vodka until they drown, which is kind of what happens with addictions. Your, your behavior becomes normal. And, and that's exactly what we've seen through the lens of mice. From everything that I'm hearing, it sounds like the possibilities for this in the future beyond treating just alcoholism are 
almost endless. Well, correct. Um, what we what we know through anecdotal evidence is that it's helpful for humans with alcohol and other addictive behaviors. What we know through mice and rodents is cocaine, alcohol, and obesity. But I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to speculate. So this is this is what I think. I think that it would be useful for binge type behaviors of a variety of sorts. I can see it being useful for tobacco. In fact, we have one individual that has been reported to us who's used it to stop smoking. Food is absolutely a binge type behavior. Alcohol is a binge type behavior. Cocaine is a binge type behavior. Now, do does it extend beyond that to things like you know one arm bandits and gambling? I mean, I actually have no idea if if that if it would go that far. But there are a wide variety of addictive disorders that are binge type, and and we think it would be helpful for many of them. I wanted to add on on uh, what uh, Mark just said is that we also try to see whether. Uh, MEI will be useful for for uh, depression because of times addictions is associated with depression. And you see uh, that people who have some kind of uh, addiction, they also suffer from depression. Initial results are very promising. And this is also something that we will continue to look at. So we do believe that MEI kind of have a very extensive uh, potential to be useful for addictions and comorbidities that are associated with uh, addictions. You answered part of my question because that that's what it was going to be. You know, there's, there's always underlying causes for addiction. Normally it's, uh, it comes to the person himself. Nobody wakes up one day and is just like, Oh, I want to, I want to be a heroin addict. I want to be a meth addict. Yeah. You know, that's, right. it doesn't happen. And so that is very, that's amazing that, uh, you know, that you're, looking at and seeing if it treats that underlying cause I'm still interested on the binge factor of it you know because while while some habits you know do start out as a binge you know there's when you take alcoholism most of the time the uh, the lifelong alcoholics and the ones that could benefit the most off of something like this they're not binge drinkers at all they're just daily drinkers you know they wake up with it they have mm-hmm. the shakes and they're getting sick until they have their first drinks in the morning you know and then levels them out for the day and then they keep going what about opioids? You know, that's another crisis here in America. And, and then I'm sure worldwide, but you hear about it so much in America with, uh, with the pain management clinics and stuff and just what's been pushed down a lot of people's throats. Now you have everybody hooked on these opioids and having severe health issues and ruining families. Could this, and that's a, another hard addiction that's really hard to get off of. Uh, this can fix that. You take it and now all of a sudden you don't want to take your Percocets anymore. I mean, is that... It's potentially yes, potentially yes. Um, just because we see we we see, for instance, uh, naltrexone, which is anti-opioid treatment, which is also there are some studies showing that it might be useful for cocaine. So I think addiction is relatively some of the addictions at least um, have some basic uh, the same basic um, mechanism. So I believe it might be useful. I don't. I cannot say whether it is because this is something we haven't looked at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason why we haven't looked at it yet is because for uh, opioid addictions, that is naltrexone, which is quite useful treatment. We're really trying to focus at this point at something that has no good alternative currently available, whether uh, under development or 
on the market. And this is um, things like cocaine addiction, which you have no specific treatment for cocaine addiction, obesity, the, the, the alternatives that are available are not as good as what we at least found in our preclinical studies and same for uh, alcoholism. But um, potentially it can be useful also for uh, opioid addiction. I'd like to build, can I build on what Adi said and comment on your comment, which was, is it useful for helping people treat underlying disorders? You know, the, the trauma from childhood, for example, that is often results in people becoming addicted later in life. And, and the short answer is yes and no. So what happens is people will have some kind of trauma thing and then they'll develop these addictions and then the addiction takes a life of its own and they become addicted to things like alcohol. So our piece of that puzzle is let's get people to manage their alcohol use or their cocaine use or whatever it is. And this comes in as a management tool for the actual drug. And then that frees up people to do the therapy that they need to do, whether it's talk therapy or quite frankly, psychedelic psychotherapy or whatever they need to do to actually go and heal their trauma. We don't see that MEI would be part of their actual trauma healing process, but it manages the thing that gets in the way of them doing their trauma healing process, which is the addiction. So if we can help them stabilize their lives and get them healthy, then they can go off and do whatever they need to do to work with the therapeutic process. We're also aware, I mean, I've been part of the MAPS world for years. I'm also aware that the price of psychedelic psychotherapies is going to be really expensive. Yeah. And I know that I've done the math and it, and it's kind of obvious as to why is because what you're talking about is credentialed people. We're talking about psychologists and psychiatrists and whoever else, but clinical clinical people who have big credentials spending a lot of time with people who have, are asking for the service. All of that adds up to kachink, kachink, kachink. It adds up to money and a lot of it. And so these, these services will be relatively inaccessible just because of the cost. MEI is designed to be accessible. It doesn't come with a therapeutic component. It's just simply something that if you want to manage your drinking, you go to your physician, you get the prescription, you pick up the medication and you take it as needed. So we see it as being an extremely accessible medication in a way that psychedelic treatments, while I think they're fantastic, won't be accessible due to the cost. How far away do you guys think this is? How long until, uh, how long are your clinical trials and stuff before, you know, how long until somebody can go to their doctor here in Las Vegas and request this? That's a great, another great <laughs> question because I, I would need a crystal ball in order to be able to answer this. It, it takes um, several years. Yeah, I do hope that, you know, something in the, in the one figure area. Okay. But yeah. Mark, you had said at the beginning of the call that your interest in this started because of reading about it online. And hearing in about you know reports of this and stuff that and that even makes me curious. I, mean, I can do my own deep dive later, but of you know the person that first developed this or isolated it and or created it, how were people you know just it was it just is it was it black market? It was like the dark web access? Is that how people were doing it? Like people do with all the other types of psychedelics and stuff? Yes. It was just experimenting with it, and then people were like oh wait this isn't the psychedelic that we thought it was, and it's actually not a psychedelic, it's something else? Essentially, yes to everything you just said. So it was invented by a man who invents molecules, and it was sold online. Um, the dark web, I think, is a good description of what he did. 
And then it got discussed. People were just noticing this anti-addictive quality and that that discussion grew. And that's what pulled us into the discussion. It, it was also interesting that it was more than just a discussion because there was, a, yes, there was a discussion on the internet, but the inventor of the molecule wanted to actually gather some more formalized anecdotal evidence. So he found a woman who was willing to provide, quite frankly, MEA parties with her neighbors. And she did it fairly formally. By that, I mean, she would invite them over repetitively or invite her community over repetitively. About 200 people went through the process. And the deal was, she would dose you as you walked in the door and you filled out a questionnaire when you left. And people had access to a table full of alcohol. There was everything there. It was a beer, wine, whiskey, everything. And then a table full of food. And essentially, she asked, what was this experience like as they left the room? And I went up talking to her and I said, how many of the people that arrived, these 200 people, would you describe as being dependent on alcohol or alcoholic? And she said, over half. You know, she had a lot of friends that had some pretty significant problems. And it was over 80% of the people said they drank less alcohol. And what we didn't know at the time was people also said they ate less food and they enjoyed the experience. So that was really what tweaked us, um, the folks at Clear Mind Medicine. We, we took that and then Clear Mind Medicine was formed as a company. And we took the, all of that anecdotal discussion and turned it into a company that is, quite frankly, a, a, an interesting company that is actually positioned very differently from other psychedelic companies that can't patent any molecules. And so because this is different enough as a discussion, MEI is now a very, very patented process and, you know, I come from sort of the radical view of the world that patents are horrible, but the truth of the matter is you can't do business without them. So you actually yeah. need to have an income flow. The cost of clinical trials is huge and you need to be able to fund it. That is the actual hard reality of the whole clinical trial research world. Mm -hmm. Bringing psychedelics to people requires this pathway that is expensive. And if you're going to do it, you have to be able to patent your stuff so you get investors who will support you and then you have the money to walk the path of the clinical trial research and that's exactly are, what what clear mind medicine has done which you guys are a publicly traded company correct yes yeah it's, congratulations on that and uh again just hats off to what you guys are doing uh first of all just the impact that you're having um for going out and and making the dedication to make the world a better place, and that's what uh, that's what we like to see is people that just take that take their passion and uh, turn it into a a better reality for others. That's what that's what we're supposed to do as as human beings. And so, thank you for doing your part, uh, Doctor Adi and Mark. I appreciate your time and and talking to us this morning and educating us on MEI. Uh, definitely look forward to doing my own little my own research on the side on it and. Uh, Looking forward to seeing where, where it comes in the future. I know some people personally that could benefit off of this. And so I wish you guys the best of luck and, and hope to see hope to see it available soon. Thank you so much. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. 
Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.